we are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country, give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country, give me my Hi everyone, this is We The Aliens Podcast and I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Francis Scholl. Francis is a business consultant, author, and speaker. He is the founder of The Human Company and The Squircle Academy. As a consultant, he has worked with such companies as Siemens, Maybelline, L'Oreal, Ralph Lauren, and many, many more. But the reason I wanted to chat with him are not his um, business credits, but the fact that I know that his path to becoming a business consultant has been quite unorthodox. You know how in life there are people who are going through it in a very straight and pointed way as if they are on a railroad and they're just plowing through to their destination. And then there are people who are taking this windy trail through the hills with a lot of twists and turns and ups and downs. And um, you may have guessed that I am more of a second type. Um, I've changed careers, I've changed countries, and I'm still looking. And uh, I can't say that it's always comfortable. I do wish uh, sometimes that the path would have been a bit straighter. But you get what you get. Uh, so I am always happy to meet a fellow windy trail walker. And I love to see people who make bold changes in their life, who try new things and who continue to discover themselves. And Francis is definitely one of these people. I hope you enjoy. Here's our conversation. Hi, Francis. Hello, Sasha. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. It's so great to have you on the podcast. I thank am you, thrilled. You. I'm really excited. Uh, I'm excited for many reasons, but I uh, one of the reasons I am really excited is that I went through your new book and I realized that a lot of that approach that you're talking about has to do with adaptation. And adaptation is one of the big themes for me in this podcast, in the search that I am doing uh, for our audience. So let's jump right into it. And um, first two questions are always, how long have you been in the States? And where did you come here from? I've been in the States for 25 years. Hard to believe, 25 years. I was arriving from Paris. From I came Paris. here for a week. You came here for... A week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you first think about coming here for a week? <laughs> it just happened like this, you know. It was, um, I was ending a very intense, prolific, beautiful work experience in Paris as an art book publisher. Um, and I was in my early 20s, so that was like a, a rare experience. And I was um, leading the publishing house, actually, um, with the son of the founder of the publishing house, who was not a man uh, of publishing and not a man of business, but he was very gifted. He was a pediatric heart surgeon, 
mm-hmm. who changed career. And, um, and he was a very, very good publisher, but he didn't know really how to run the business. So I was hired to do that. And he gave me the opportunity to do both art book publishing and management and business. So we were not separate from, from the other in a small business like this was important. So anyway, so I had a very intense, beautiful life between 24 and 28 in Paris and around the world as an art book mm-hmm. publisher, publishing books and running a business. And, um, and, I, um, and I stopped for different reasons. I felt like there was the end of that chapter. I had to move on. And I, it was a big, a big transition. And a friend of mine said, oh, we'd like to go for a week to, uh, to New York. I said, yeah, of course, I love New York. I've always loved New York. I came to study in New York when I was um, a teenager. And uh, a, summer, a summer at Columbia University. So New York was like kind of the second home for me. Did you ever that. consider moving to the U.S. or leaving Paris? Never. Never. I had lived in Germany for a year and a half, but after my global career as an art book publisher at a very young age, you know, I had traveled quite a bit already, like probably in already 40 or 50 countries at that age. And so traveling was really close to my way of life yeah. for work and for pleasure. And um, for me at that age, I wanted to become a citizen of the world. That was very clear to me that France was too small. Mm-hmm. As much as I love the culture, the country, and my friends and my family, <clears throat> I felt I, had, I belonged somewhere else. And, and that was a vague idea. But the idea of being in New York for a year, that was the idea originally when I came for a week, then it became a year, mm-hmm. became 25 years. Um, I, um, I just love the idea of living in New York for a year, you know, like being, being in that yeah. international global city and taking a sabbatical at time and money. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to take a year to actually get to know myself. That was a project and be more connected with my body, with my emotions, with my feelings and less in the head, less intellectual, less French, um, less, you know, less, uh, le- le- less left bank publishing world Paris, you know? So, um, what so. do you mean when you say less French? Because French people love ideas, love French people love principles and philosophy and all that political philosophy, all that stuff. So, you know, you grow up developing a wealth of knowledge around literature, ideas, philosophy. At least that's how I grew up. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a child, you know, we would not know a word. The first thing we'd say, well, let's pick up a dictionary and look it up. What's the etymology of the word? What does it mean? So history. Okay, well, let's pick up a book of history. There was no internet at the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, or for iPhone. So, yeah. so knowledge, you know, knowing and what we call culture in France, like so important in the, in the you know, like, like Russia. Uh, Russians are the same. Yeah. Same. I was gonna exactly. Say. Yeah. Exactly. I was, was going to say, that's, that sounds, I'm, am I French? <laughs> yeah. So that's, no, okay. So that's what I know, you know? So, yeah. so for me, you know, the way I grew up is like from age 14, you start actually have to accumulate good grades at school because that's yeah. what's going to lead you to go into the good universities. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, from age 14, you're very young. You know, I remember at age 14, I was yeah. still playing with toys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was already writing essays on literature. So, that you know, you live those two lives. But the junction is not so, you know, it's very intellectual. You know, you, you transition from, from childhood into developing your intellect, whether you're a scientist or, you know, or politician or lawyer, whatever, it's going to be really about growing that mind. Yeah. And then I landed in the world of art book publishing, which was much more sensorial than purely text, For which sure. I loved, you know, a great, yeah. great, great, great subject. 
art, art history. But, um, but still, you know, I was in an office mm-hmm. writing books or helping write books. So, yeah. um, so for me to go to acting was like, wow, okay, it's different. You know, I had done sports, but then I wanted to do something creative. And then I thought, okay, I've done art books. It's two dimensional. I'm going to direct. It's three dimensional live stage. And I, so, and I love that. I love directing. So you came to New York and with, with the idea, well, for a week, I guess, to just to hang out. Yes, exactly. And on the and plane, then, and on the plane, um, I had a project to open a school in Paris to buy a, a very historical school of music where famous composers had been teachers and musicians and performers. And I thought I'm going to buy that school where I used to go myself to sing in a choir. Hmm. And and there was a friend banker who would bring the means to buy it. and there was I was a, just going to say, at 28, you were going to buy a school. But, you know, I had done well in publishing. You know, I had become, I had become uh, a shareholder. So, actually, I was... That's very impressive. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was, you know, that was life, you know. So, I, um, mm-hmm. I was fortunate in this way. But anyway, so we were thinking of doing this. And I, what I thought is, rather than creating a music school that would be about creating competitive musicians... Mm-hmm. I thought of creating a music school and performing arts school to develop human that would be more human by the mm-hmm. the love of the arts and the practice of the arts, mm-hmm. the performing arts. So that was my vision. And then when I was on the plane, I thought, you know, Francis, you just complete something, give yourself a break and live that school rather than buying it and creating it and managing it, just give yourself a break. So I went to an acting school uh, as a visitor, so to speak. You know, I was, I, was a, I was a student, but everybody wanted to become, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. And I was the only one who just had no aim, but just having a good time, you know, and discovering mm-hmm. myself. So, mm-hmm. so that was a bit disconcerting, I remember. That was, like, very different. Um than my life in an office with assistants and business class yeah. tickets to make deals in Japan and all that stuff, or, or yeah. working with great intellectuals and experts in Paul Clay or Japanese woodprints or whatever, or Renaissance times. And um, so then, no, I did this. I, I did that for a year. And then what happened is really what caught me by surprise, but not fully by surprise, but really what caught my attention, my love, my passion really aroused me was singing. And because I'd been singing for seven years on and off in choir, and I loved singing choir, that was unbelievable. Um, I'd actually told myself one night after singing St. John's Passion in Paris at La Sorbonne, I said to myself, you know, if ever I leave that wonderful job I have, art book publishing, um, it will be to perform and be a singer. Mm. And I said that, you know, probably with a glass of wine in my hand, so at night, at midnight, but then it happened. When I found myself in New York a few years later, I said to myself, you know what? You want to do this, do it. Mm-hmm. You have time, you have money. Yeah. This is unique. You know, you have no commitments to anyone but to yourself. So go go for it. So I, I, I started with two teachers at the same time. One was a mezzo-soprano at the Metropolitan Opera, and the one was a teacher's college professor of voice at Columbia. And those wow. were my two teachers at acting school. And, and I stayed with both of them. And six months later, I realized that neither of them were really inspiring me enough to keep going. And I went to another teacher and that was a revelation. Hmm. So I stayed with her for eight years. Wow. So and my sabbatical, my one year sabbatical became a 10 year sabbatical. 
So you sang professionally for 10 years? No, I didn't sing professionally for 10 years. Far from this. I studied for many years. I okay. became semi-professional. I joined an opera company called Di Capo. I am um, mm -hmm. on the Upper East Side. I, um, I joined also another opera called, a company called Opera Amato, you know, um, mm -hmm. that was a very small, tiny company in New York. And so, you know, I just did, I became a supernumerary at the Metropolitan Opera, meaning I was one of those slaves or ecclesiastes or, you know, um, um, pedestrian in the streets of Paris in La Bohème, you know, so people who don't sing, but create crowds and, you know, and carry spears uh -huh. or whatever, you know, um, uh -huh. just to learn. So I was on stage mm -hmm. with Pavarotti singing on stage, you know, Mario in, the, in Tosca, you know, and I was learning all these lines and all these music and I was in the, in the feel of it, you know, and I just loved it. That was my life in New York, yeah. yeah. And then I, I went on tour in Lena City Figaro. Um, um, that was many years ago. Um, cast as Dr. Bartolo and as the, the governor, very small roles. I mean, secondary role and very small role, but I had fun, you know, I was on tour and professionally so, yeah. That is so amazing. And that's one of those things about your life. And I know there's going to be more twists and turns coming <laughs> before we get to today. But I want to ask you right there, how did you have the, the confidence to accept that thing coming at you? I don't have any problem accepting things coming at, at me. You know, what's harder to sustain it. And what was difficult is one, it was a hell of a journey to get my voice out. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to say something which is useful for maybe the rest of our conversation later, but, you know, musicians, uh, sorry, singers or musicians buy their instrument. They go to a store and they buy a piano, yeah. a saxophone, whatever. But musicians, uh -uh, there's nothing to buy. It's in you already. Yes. So we're the one who give birth to that instrument. Yeah. You know, or just birth to its capacity to perform. Yeah. <clears throat> and the first step is to understand that instrument, be with it, listen to it, learn from it, for it to give its best, you know? Wow. Yeah. So it's very different from a, a violinist, you know, who will buy the best violin and will get the yeah. best sound. No, that's, that's not the way it works. So it's a very vulnerable, um, harder than actors, honestly, because actors, you know, like to sing out of pitch is to sing out of pitch. That sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? For sure. Actors, yes. I don't, I, you know, good actors, less good actors, of course, but you know, it's not the same as sing out of pitch. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, well, it gets close. I, yeah, mean, but, you know, I know, but you know, as somebody really... who does editing, seeing mm. terrible performance is kind of just at close, cringy, cringe yeah, level. I know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I can but tell I, you. I, I hear, I, yes, yeah, yeah. For sure. opera, 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 it's perfection, it's, tempo, yes. rhythm, pitch. Acting, acting suffers a lot, but you know, in opera, but you know, um, no, it's really uh, very difficult. So anyway, so I didn't really do great, but I had a great time. Okay. Uh, very challenged, very scared, very uh, humbled, very overwhelmed. Like, it's like, I can tell you, it was like so difficult, but I stuck to it. And until after eight years, I had a blow up with my teacher, who was a difficult one. But the master technique I was learning really is what got my interest. Mm. So I stayed with it. And then so were, that's what pulled you through? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the ego aspect of artistry, which is necessary, was hard on me. I function much better where I carry something that's bigger than me than mm -hmm. when it's about me. 
Yes, I that, hear that, that's you. my personality. That's all. Like, there's nothing I can do about that. You know. I think it's a European thing. Well, I don't know. No, no? You, have, you have performers. You have performers around the world. You know. So I think it's a personality thing. You know. It's a. It's it's. You know. I love performing, but mm-hmm. to build your career, your livelihood, with you. And your soul and your passion and your professionalism all in one place is very difficult. It was very difficult for me. Not something that was giving me the most energy. It was limited. I feel limited when it's about me and uh, in this very extreme way. Mm. It's just a matter. There's no judgment just for me, you know, what works for me, what doesn't work for me. And um, so that was the second thing. And the third thing that was difficult for me is that as an opera singer, even if you can sing contemporary opera and everything, the, the thing you have to do, is really um, learn the classics mm-hmm. to perfection. So that means that you spend a lot of time on work of the past. Mm-hmm. And I'm very much about the future. So that was a second heavy weight for me, mm-hmm. you know, to carry around and to dedicate my life to because you, there's, no, there's no in between. You know, either you give it all or you don't for that mm-hmm. kind of career, you know. So, and I was giving it all and I was not going very far. And I was not 200% inspired by some heavyweight built in the journey of an opera singer. So when it blew up with my teacher, I was left nowhere. I couldn't go back to her. I know she called me once on my, I, I saw that on my answering machine. I saw, you know, like a, I saw her number show up. I wasn't there, so I didn't pick up. She didn't leave a message. And I never had the inner impulse to call her which was wow. as devastating as it was freeing. That's, I can imagine. And you never spoke again. Never. Can I ask what the blow up was about? About legato. You know, legato is your singing yes. line, you know, you know. And, and I felt I was never able to have my legato in place and my technique there after eight years. And I was very frustrated, very insecure and very upset. And I told her things that were very demanding, which you don't do with somebody who has dedicated her life with a master. Well, you don't do it to the representant of a mastery technique. I don't know that she was a master. Mm-hmm. I know that the technique was mastery. I was certainly not a master student. And sometimes mm-hmm. I had the feeling I was not with a master teacher. But mm-hmm. that was my thing at the time. You know, I have, you know, I've not seen her in so long. And actually she passed. You know? um, mm-hmm. She was an amazing woman. She was an amazing woman. As a pedagogue, as a teacher, I think the relationship was harder. And it was only for me. The whole studio had her, had all the students had like their moments with her. She was a difficult mm-hmm. woman. Anyway, mm-hmm. but that was, that, that was added to the difficulty for me. You know, it's like, you know, my life, I, I, was, I was really in her hands. Yes, it's a very, any kind of commitment to art is a very huge commitment. Very yes. complicated. Yes. And then you also left France to do that. And a career and success and friends who were doing super well and I was going nowhere. It's like, you know, hard to not compare. But then, you know. Oh, yes. I yeah. hear you very well. Yeah. yeah, it was very hard. Very, very hard. But, but you know, my subject, my really beneath opera was know thyself. That was mm-hmm. really the question I wanted to answer. And, and I knew that I had a gift for business, for leadership, for making money. And I didn't want to touch it again because I knew that I would succeed, most likely if I was staying in business, you know, because, you know, art book publishing is a sophisticated business, you know, yes. and, and we've been very successful. The company double size, became the most profitable publishing house. It was published 
in, in industry surveys and in reports that I read later. So mm-hmm. we really had recognition and, and, and that went great. So I knew I could do it. So it's reassuring. It's confidence building. And at the same time, I said to myself, I'm not going to touch it because mm-hmm. it's easy for me. And money and success can be really cover-ups to get to know your authentic self. And my main question was to get to know who I was and what was my place in the world and what would be meaningful to me. And that was a very unanswered question, but that was a very clear, that was an unanswered, yeah, that was an unanswered question, but that was a very vibrant question. Hmm. In other words, I had no clue as to where I would end up, but the question was very alive. That requires a lot of courage to sit in that place. For 10 years. Yeah. That's a long time, yeah. That is a long time. I've been in that place, and that's very, very difficult. Yeah. To... That's why I have to be in New York. You know, I have to be away from uh, from home and peer pressure. Hmm. Before we jump to the next phase <clears throat> that <throat> starts after, I want to ask uh, about your family. How did you grow up? Uh, who were your parents and who are they? And... You know, in, in Squirkle, my new book, you know, I start with a author's note. And in mm-hmm. the author's note, I tell something that's actually, uh, that it took me decades to understand. Um, when I was five-year-old, I had a dream, a recurring dream. Mm-hmm. And the dream was telling me, in the dream, there was a voice telling me, your dream world is a real world. And you will wake up to an illusory world, a world of illusion. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do with it. It was like a dream. There was, like, there was not a nightmare, but there was a puzzling dream. There was like a kohan, a Zen kohan yeah. for a five-year-old. Okay, so <laughs> I had no clue. And my family, they were very kind people, well-intended people overall. Um, we had a roof, we had an education, we had very privileged life in many, many ways. A lot of access to nature, a life in Paris, education. Da, da, da. Okay. What did your parents do? Uh, my mother was a, a professor in chemistry mm-hmm. and my father was an engineer in um, atomic energy and electronics and lots of different things. Yeah, So, so it is he, a very uh, intellectual family, definitely. Yeah, intellectual and scientific, yeah. honest, integral, um, yeah. you know, um, who had emancipated two generations ago through education, you know, so learning, studying was important. Emancipated, what does that mean? Socially, you know, my great-grandparents, my great-grandfather, one of them, so one of them, I mean, there were different parts of the family, but like, you know, one layer of the family was, Mm -hmm. um, he was um, a a policeman on a horse, you see what I mean? Which was already, you know, he owned a horse, he had a uniform and everything that was like not poor, but that was not, you know, on the top of society. And then my grandparents studied and successfully really reached the highest level of education in France, had a big careers, professionals, worked for governments and stuff like that, you know, were, Mm -hmm. were traveled the world, you know, in the early 20th century. So, but they did that, they achieved that mostly through educating themselves. Mm-hmm. So my parents grew up with that same pattern and we grew up with the same pattern. You know, if you don't study, you'll regret it. <laughs> Bottom line, you know, that was the idea. Yeah. You know, so. yeah, same. I come from a very similar background. Yeah. Also yeah. scientists and I'm the only weird yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. So, no, so again, still so, figuring so, it out. Well, it took me a long, a long time, you know, for myself. So, so I... Um, so yeah, so that's what I did. I um, I um, I had those dreams. So you ran those away. Dreams were, those dreams were actually going to take forty years to be revealed? 
So what did they reveal to? After I stopped singing, studying with that teacher, and I couldn't replace her by any other teacher, although I tried, mm -hmm. I left for India. Hmm. I was just going to ask, like, did you consider going back at that moment, going to France? No. No, never. And I can explain to you why. That's a whole other question. But So I went to yes. India. Mm -hmm. I went to India because I'd studied um, yoga even before mm -hmm. I started singing. But mm -hmm. then I did a lot of yoga for my singing, breathing and relaxing and being present mm -hmm. in the moment, all that stuff. And, um, and in India... They talk about Maya, the world of illusion. Hmm. That what our senses perceive is not the essence of reality, it's a projection. And the only mm -hmm. way you can really get to the truer reality is through giving up the senses and the attachment to what you see mm -hmm. and perceive. And then you you can get to a deeper level of consciousness, you know, um, yeah. A, yeah, a deeper perception that's not linked to your sensorial experience. And that's called, yeah, Maya, the world of illusion. And then Hinduism, you know, is looking for this higher consciousness. And yoga is the union between the individual consciousness and the universal consciousness. So that was the journey of a yogi, you know, that was already imprinted or tattooed, you know, in my psyche, in my dream world. Yeah. And I was five. And today mm -hmm. in my work, What I do is I help society leaders perceive um, reality, certainly through logic and facts, but also through intuition, which brings information beyond what makes sense. Like, you know, you, you perceive things, you have perceptions, you have sensations, yeah. you have gut feelings, and they don't necessarily make sense. And they're yeah. sometimes embarrassing. And like the dream world, like you have dreams that don't make any sense, you know? And, and so you have all these images in your dream world, but you have also those sensations in your awakened life, yeah. in your awakened world. And, the, and that information is what takes you from not knowing to knowing how to move through the complexity of life or moving through the unknown. And if you feed that muscle, then you can adapt much better and solve complex problems and so on and so forth. And it takes so much, and I, I mean, I don't know, maybe, and I'm not maybe, I'm sure there are people who are, rece who receive that information in a natural and easy way. Mm -hmm. I've always struggled with that trusting your gut thing, mm -hmm. or even hearing my gut. And I have found that, and I'm still learning that. I have mm -hmm. re recognized a few years ago how important that is, but it's even no, even just accepting and knowing it is one step, but then really, really knowing it and really accepting the information that you're mm -hmm. being given. Mm -hmm. That's the main challenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is, what, what is, um, well, we can jump to, to your method since we're, since we're at it. Um, does does your method give any answer to that? Of course, yes. Um, so maybe like a little preamble to the yeah, method. Why, why am I doing this? Yeah. So as I'm really kind of lost 
you know, trying to find the next iteration of my life after this breakup in singing. Yeah. I, um, as I'm going through this or in those years leading to this, I was very worried 20 years ago about the lack of sustainability of our models. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking, I don't know how we're going to get through this one. You know, it's like, I don't see a solution. Yeah. And I was like, but this doesn't make any sense, you know, which of course was not something helping me finding my place in the world because I felt like the world was like, you know, on a... Falling apart. Yeah. And and also not only falling apart, but doing things exactly opposite to the direction where we should be looking into or looking at, yeah. you know. So that was hard for me to find my place in a world I didn't really buy into, not from an ideological standpoint, but much more from a cultural standpoint, from a way of, of, of humanity, you see what I mean? The way of humanity, let's put it this way. Yeah. And um, the big question I had is how come we managed to go to the moon, a very sophisticated brain, technology, science, and we're unable to live in harmony with nature? You know, landfills, pollution in the ocean, air pollution, and so on and so forth. And, and I was thinking like no one that I know would ever put out a cigarette butt in their own bed. Yeah. And that's what we all do collectively. So we would never do it individually. And yet collectively, that's what we do. Yeah. Nature, our cradle, we treat yeah. it as if it were, you know, a landfill. Yeah. So a dumpster. So, so that was my question. And as I'm studying opera, after September 11, 2001, of course, um, things are hard. And, I was like doing some temp work for an. I mean, temp work. I was I was advising the uh, the founders of an advertising firm. That was a side job. I was doing in parallel to doing my uh, my opera. I um, I ended up doing something for the CEO of L'Oreal, the former CEO, not the one today, the one before, Sir Lindsay Owen Jones, on how do you manage creative people, mm-hmm. and that got me to think about what it means to be a manager, which I had been, you know, at the head of a publishing house in Paris, and being an artist on stage as an actor, as a singer, as a director of other actors, being really creative and wrestling with the creative process. So I had to really revisit these different aspects of my life and analyze them and try to understand them to bring something for L'Oreal. And I realized, so that we're leading, we're going to where we we want to go. The manager has to stabilize life, which is chaos, unpredictable chaos, okay, as it has yeah, unpredictable circumstances called chaos, by rationalizing things. You know, you have to you have to limit things so that you can have a budget that you respect, a timeline that you will abide with or buy and so on and so forth. So they rationalize what's what's not rational life to make projects move forward. And then you have creative people, he or she, who in the chaos of life orient themselves through instinct with their guts and as they manage to go through chaos without controlling chaos encounter newness within themselves newness, new things, new ideas yes, 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 yes so either within themselves something spurs out of their brain or their heart or just notice things around themselves okay, so logical mind, manager, control creative instinct flow yes and i thought oh wow but we need to bring those two together so that the business can operate and at the same time new ideas can be born so i created intuitive intelligence the synergy between the rational mind 
and the instinctual attitudes that we have. Mm-hmm. With the great awareness that instinct was actually dominated by the rational mind in business. You know, you can create, but within budget. Mm-hmm. You have to create, but within timelines. And mm-hmm. creative people complain that they're always under pressure rather than being understood for the, you know, the golden geese, you know, the one that really bring the goal to the organization because without new ideas, there's no company or there's no renewal of the company. So I said, okay, well, this is my answer. This is my answer to the lack of sustainability of the world because since I'm three, I'm given tools to be logical, analytical, mm-hmm. but I've equated my life to the mastery of those tools. Yes. But we're more than logic. We're inspiration, imagination, aspiration, uh, sensation, intuition, and all these dimensions don't fit in logic. Mm-hmm. And instinct doesn't fit in logic. You know, we've all mm-hmm. fallen in love with people that we knew would be probably the hottest thing in our life, but probably the most difficult one as well. And maybe not a good relationship, but we still went for it because, you know what, it was just so fun. Okay. Yeah. And maybe it ended mm-hmm. badly, but the experience was great and probably very transformative because we just went yes. for really something that was meaningful to us in some way. It's like really, you know, okay. So yeah. that's how you learn in life through experience. You know, and you don't measure yeah, all your, yeah, but you know, exactly. But you know, that's how you grow. That's how you learn. You know, yeah. you, you don't measure experiences necessarily. You engage in experiences. Okay. So, so, so I thought, okay, well, we live in a system where instinct, the intelligence of nature in us is being dominated by the logical mindset mm-hmm. and it represses instinctual aptitudes, if not negate or destroy what is our best connector to nature, best instrument to understand nature, best tool to live sustainably with nature. So I imagine 20 years ago, I said, okay, well, okay, if we're able to bring back instinct in the way we look at situations and make decisions, we're bringing in the process, nature, nature that lives in me, instinct, I am of nature. I live with nature. I breathe air. I breathe the oxygen produced by the tree and I send out uh, CO2. So we are in this exchange of energy and, and physical and chemicals and everything. So, so For sure we are. We, we forget yeah, about we are, it. Absolutely. And how do you convince a, a CEO to bring that in? Okay. 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 So no. So, so you write a book, you write a book, you test your instruments in real life You see how they work. So as a craftsman who created my own instrument, I went into businesses and I had enough of to, to offer from previous experience. And I was testing instrument devices and models with them. And, and I saw results. And it was amazing. And I got compliments. And I was reviewed in papers. And I wrote a book. It became a bestseller. That was intuitive intelligence, another path to mm-hmm. success. And then a friend picked up the book and said, oh, it's a great book. You should really have it translated in English. But then French people love ideas. American people love solutions. So I had to reinvent the book completely. And I came up with a model, the intuitive compass, a new GPS mm-hmm. for a new world. So I created that model, which is kind of the antithetic model to the typical strategic management tool of Boston Consulting yeah. Group of McKinsey, the greatest, you know. Is that um, what they do? I have no idea. I'm not in the business world at all. So. <laughs> yeah, no, no. They, they put everything in matrix. Everything is logical. Everything is based mm-hmm. on strategy and analysis and facts. And of course, in my view, they miss out the greatest part of organizations, which is humans. Because humans, you cannot put humans in matrix. You, know, you cannot Facebook. measure them. You can't, they're, not, they're not equation. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know. 
I believe that if you want innovation, you know, you need to retain what people have best to offer, which is the creativity and the agility. And that's a nature's, that's our birth gift. That's nature in us. Okay. So yeah. that's what the intuitive compass does. You know, it's really not about categorizing people. It's just showing them where the ability to thrive in disruption lives yeah. at the confluent of instincts. Okay. Our capacity to be forever creative and adaptive and play which is an activity where you are in the flow, you give up control and you find your way of adapting and you encounter newness and the two together create one of the quadrants of my circle, you know, my compass, um, which is rejuvenation, entrepreneurship, invention, Mm -hmm. everything that organizations need today to a certain degree, to a certain extent, at least be aware of, nurture, protect and encourage to a certain degree. So that's the model that I've developed. And okay, so now I've done that for 15 years. My goal was to show that there is a way of thinking, a way of making decisions that could bring results, Mm -hmm. innovation, create value in business, very tough world of, you know, black and white, no BS. And, and And my goal was to bring it to Davos, the World Economic Forum, to show to the presidents of countries and global organizations there was another way to do it. And I brought that to the highest level of Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies and conversation with CEOs. And I thought when I met with them, we had great conversations, I realized that they were not necessarily the innovators because they had to keep in place tens of billions of dollars of business accountable to Wall Street, a board of director, market competition, and so forth. So they were more, you know, trying to step by step keep afloat, you know, enormous ships and they were not like speedboats that were very you know maneuverable so i said okay well i'm knocking at the wrong door it's not going to work and that's when i encountered um a former client on a project for women and i realized that was the right crowd that's how we met sasha you know in those ateliers i was doing for women i listened to women a lot and i developed a model called squircle that brings square and circle also known as but i don't want to keep to stay on that yes Feminine and masculine energy, okay? But I, I think to solve the gender conundrum, we have to give up all reference to men and women and all reference to feminine and masculine so we can look at it as a universal language, universal energies that we all have in us and have different preferences and inclinations at different moments of our lives or based on our personality. But understanding that the creative self circle lives today in a society where the structure itself, the analytical mind, has taken power of a circle. And that costs us our capacity to be inventive, innovative, agile, and and sustainable. To follow up on that, actually, I just realized, you know, I I brought up the example of Facebook, but it's actually a perfect example of that square that puts people in squares and in those boxes of analyzed data of what you are, who you are, and what you're going to listen to and what you're going to do and traps you in that square. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, see, I see your point. So we I need to point. add yeah, uh, a I circle to Facebook's philosophy to to break mm-hmm. up those uh, eco chambers that they're creating. Sure. You know, those big global organizations, you know, um, even if they're not that old, you know, I think Jeff Bezos was saying, like, you know, talking about his own company, Amazon, which is like a giant. He said, you know, we're too big now. We need to reinvent them ourselves because we're doomed to die. We're just too big. We're too big to be agile. You could start with paying people minimum wage. Like, that would be a good start right there. 
<laughs> Very easy reinvention, not 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 too deep, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> no, I mean you're right. I mean, like you know. Anyway, that's you know. Uh, Amazon would never uh, be invented in France. I don't know. You know, I cannot tell I, you. Well, that. okay, I don't know. I just Maybe know right. how much uh, employees are protected. But you see, we live in a global world, mm-hmm. but. I've lived in different countries and I've traveled extensively in others. Um, Mm -hmm. And we keep comparing systems. And I think it's not a fair thing that we do to ourselves because France has been a United Kingdom for a thousand years and America has found its unity 200, 250 years ago. So very different history, different way of building a country, a nation, um, it's 52 states. It's look, look the struggle that mm-hmm. Europe has to be Europe, you know, and that was started right after the second world war, like in the 50s, 50s, 70 years ago. It's, it's, it's a process. So applying the way of thinking and living of Europeans who went through revolutions, who went through so many iterations of society to what America is doing and struggling with in some aspects um, is not the best way of getting at what really a country huh. is, could be, and could improve on to become. You have to respect Definitely. the history of every country to, no, but when I say empathize, that's not respect, it's empathize, yeah. to really understand what the journey has been, to understand where the next yeah. step can be. I, I think I, I think I know what you mean. <laughs> I I do want to uh, kind of pick up on what we were talking about, about differences in history and differences in um, in per- perception because of the history of the people and because of history of the countries mm-hmm. that we come from. And that's something that, you know, that this podcast is a l- is touching on for, for me. And that's what I'm exploring. And um, and it's about adapting and adjusting uh, so for you as a Frenchman who came here as an adult, not as a child, you were a formed person. Uh, what, what was it that you saw here that attracted you? I think the reason why, you know, lots of people ask me the question because, you know, I come from like Russia, a country with a, a long history, a deep culture, a rather equitarian society trying to really do good for people and providing the necessities in France, um, trying to, trying to, you know, provide a good life based on principles, which are fabulous values, um, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity. I mean, who would not stand by those, you know? So I have great... And people actually keep that in heart? Of course. That's why people get on the street all the time because they feel like they're very, they're very, careful that those are in place you know it's uh it's uh it's 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 who we are that's very important you know you you know you're, you're a dentist you're a doctor you know you have to leave your door open to anybody who knocks at your door you don't ask for a credit card you know that's your obligation you don't market your services because you respect medicine 
as a birthright for everybody, as a mutual service that people will deliver to each other. It's help, organized help, you know, with science and, and hospitals and dedications and, you know, and very different in America. I was absolutely shocked when I was seeing, you know, doctors advertising themselves on the subway of, of New York, you know, to me it was like, what? Like I felt like I was in the jungle, you know. Yeah. People take an oath in France, you know, that they will never market their, their, their services out of integrity. So, and the integrity is in science, the integrity is in service, the integrity is in, in your commitment to the health of the other person. It's like, it's serious. It's, you would, it's like giving your blood. You would never, ever, yeah. you know, compromise on this. So, so that's what French society is made of. You know, it's very serious. It's extremely serious. It's very morally. Yeah. But so, yeah, it's fabulous. And I'm very grateful for this education and for this sense mm-hmm. of values and, and spine. Uh, that you feel honorable to and, 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 and also the fact that people question this all the time you know we, are, we, we question as I said to you like so knowledge and rhetoric and so, so it's, a, it's a vibrant society from that perspective it's an equalitarian society it's, a, it's an idealistic society um, I love all of this yeah. and then comes the United States <laughs> uh, where there is poverty where there are more than 70% of the American can people, the richest country in the world, were struggling paycheck to paycheck, um, um, and, and on and on. And so forget yeah. my French roots, so I don't judge it. Yes. Okay, and I don't make comparison yeah. because it's not comparable, actually. Um, I come to America. I come to New York. I'd spent a whole summer in America when I was 16. I spent a whole mm. summer in New York at Columbia University. I've been coming to, to New York and the States many times over for my work. I work in English as much as I work in French. I've watched TV shows. I've watched movies in English. I've drank Coca-Cola. I've worn jeans. I was born in a Judeo-Christian um, education, and I, I was born in a capitalist country. So you would think that coming to New York is like, you know, coming to another city in France. Not at all. It was harder for me to come to the States and decide to live there, to live here, than to go and do business in Japan when I was a publisher. So what what was the hardest thing? The hardest thing is that I, as a French person, evaluate everything according to a set of principles. (laughs) Therefore, deduction and induction of behaviors and attitudes, whereas America, that's, that's our legal system based on the Napoleon Code that rules every behavior in France. And in America, in America, it's all about jurisprudence. So what matters is not the principle, but the freedom yes. of every individual to create the life he or she wants and making sure that freedom is protected. And yes, there is law. But every time there is law, there is jurisprudence. There's a negotiation mm-hmm. that produces a new law. So every situation can be a negotiation, which for a French person is maddening because where are my principle in this negotiation? So, so I mean, like everything is negotiable. Everything can be put on the table and looked at as something that's malleable. When we French people have fought with our blood a revolution to create equality, from a political standpoint, and has given a legal system that is really designed and a social system that's designed to keep that equality in place. And in America, everything's negotiable, including equality. As we know, too well. Too well. So so it's like completely, completely uh, a a world reversal. 
was there like a moment of rude awakening to finding out that not not all the world functions according to those principles? Was there moments? Yeah. There were moments, you know, they were really harsh moments, you know, I don't want to share them, but well, I mean, I can share that, you know, so I'm, I, so, you know, so I go to my school, somebody gives me a flyer to go to a seminar about getting to know yourself, like create whatever, whatever. So personal development workshop. So I go there and I look at this guy who, you know, teaches me over two days of 14 hours a day of seminars, you know, until six o'clock in the morning, like, you know, those crazy immersive workshops, you know, you know, you know, the way that happens in France at the time, at least 25 years ago, didn't really exist as much. So, and then, and then after he's convinced you that, you know, you can recreate the life that you dream, blah, 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 then takes you as a client, you know, and he becomes your life coach. And then he deals with traumatic aspects of your life with not a proper care, and in the middle of that relationship that's now two or three years old, tens of thousands of dollars later, borrows money from you to buy his apartment in New York, negotiate the interest rates that you will lend him the money, and negotiate with you and say, but Francis, you know, it's, that would be much too high as an interest rate, and I'm paying the session, I'm in his office, for him to help me to grow on some aspects of my personality or that. I'm paying, I'm paying right now. I'm paying, I'm paying for session and we're negotiating a loan that he has decided me to give him money that decided me to lend him for him to buy his apartment. This is wow. jungle for a French person. How did you get this away from that person? Well, I did get away and I said to him, I'm sorry, you know, yeah. it's like, that was very difficult yeah. because of course there's a, there's a mind game, you know, of course. And as you understood, when I moved to New York, I redistructured my life. So that comes a level of vulnerabilities and, and, you know, and disorientation, you know, I was fine with it, but that was part of my initiations, you know, that, that was part of understanding what I liked about French society and French culture and what I liked less or what I had to be cognizant no. about in living in the United States. However, 25 years later, I'm still here because for me, in my personality and what really animates me yes. and the diverse aspects of who I am, um, the creativity, the freedom of being is what really animates me most. So I have not lost my Frenchness. I've not lost my values. I've not lost my principles. I just live in a social experiment called America where I have much more freedom to undertake, um, much more uh, freedom to be, even forget doing. And that to me is heavens on earth. I think it's 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 very it's it's in a way comforting for me to hear your path because I'm comparing my steps a little bit and I'm 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 going through some of the similar things and actually that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast to have conversations with people who are further down the path to support myself and other people who are on that path and I have a very similar feeling about uh, American way. It is that I come from Russia, which is a different, a whole different story. And in Russia, there's this sense of nothing will ever change feeling. Just don't even bother. And America has this yes, we can thing. And yes, you can, (laughs) as in you have the freedom. And you can do it. And it's the most beautiful thing. And it is funny. I don't know what is, what was your experience looking at it from outside, looking at it from Russia, it seemed naive and childish because yes, we can. So uh, Russians look at it in a very cynical way. Who told you you can, what do you mean you can, nothing will ever change. 
And when you come here and you live for a little bit and you breathe it in and you realize that actually, if you believe it, that's what will happen. It will happen. Was there a moment for you of, of this transition from one to the other? Of Yeah, because in France, when I, so I come from, you know, a scientific family, my real work experience where I give really myself to it is art book publishing, intellectual, art yeah. history. Yeah. So it's serious. It's fact-based. It's, it's based on intellect. It's based on fine intellect, refined intellect, shaped intellect, studied intellect, learned intellect. And then you come to America and it's all about creativity. And like, what is this thing about creativity? I don't, you know, for, for us French people, at least 25 years ago, it was a scam. Mm-hmm. Creativity was like, this is that serious. You know, it's just like for people who don't have the capacity mm-hmm. to think. You see what I mean? That was really that like, that, that, that's not heavy and that judgmental. You know, I have, I have friends, world-renowned book, art book publisher that would speak English, that would go, that would be capable of speaking English, that would go to the International Art Book Fair in Frankfurt, which is the big meeting of all bookmakers mm-hmm. and publishers and everything in the world, once a year in October, and he would refuse to speak English at the book fair because he thought that English was just like this inferior language. I mean, like that's insane, no? But just to tell you, this complex of superiority and 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 even forget the complex mm-hmm. of superiority, but just this hierarchy. There's there's always a better mm-hmm. level and there's always an inferior level. And of course, the goal when you're French is to get to the higher level. And there are academies mm-hmm. and there are norms and there are, you know, so it's mm-hmm. always this comparison, you know, which is so hard. And, you know, French people tend to make you feel stupid more than feel yes. intelligent. And America is the exact opposite. They make you feel stupid, not necessarily to put you down, although that's also part of the culture, but they make you feel like you're not yeah. enough so that you learn more so you can become more. So it's yeah. really the negative motivation yes. versus the positive motivation of America. And then there's an art that was part of the, the court of Louis XIV mm-hmm. in, um, in Versailles, which was kind of the center of Europe yeah. and Europe being the center of the world. So we were the center of the center. And the practice mm-hmm. was to make fun mm-hmm. of people at the court. And because, because the king didn't only have Friends, you know, there were about a thousand people living in Versailles, or a few thousands of people living in Versailles. And there were lots of intrigues, political plots, and everything. It's not like he had friends. And one of the way was, you know, just to have this very curt sense of humor that was putting people down, and that's still part of social practice in France. And something that makes people smile when America and would be make offended people cry. and consider you being teary. Yeah, no, being teary. Forget, forget that. Being teary because yeah. I know that's not a way yeah. to treat humans. You see what I mean? But that was a way to keep people at bay hmm. and to exert a form of power because you never knew who would have the last word. That's, I can I can see that, uh, and definitely it is very different. I'm different uh, approach in. Uh, in American society. I remember when I, I came here for school actually and art school. And I, I don't know what your experience was in my school. I felt that teachers were too encouraging. Again, coming from Russia, I know how teachers are in art schools. They will, it, it's kind yeah, of to of the opposite, uh, you know, yeah, extreme yeah. of the spectrum. They will, pound you 
out of wanting to do it unless you have this strength and commitment that art demands. Whereas here, again, I, I feel that it's partially connected to the commercial side of the education system here. They want to encourage you into staying in it and buying into it that you can maybe do it. And they continue encouraging people who, where actually criticism would be demanded. Have you had a similar? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, of course. I'm mean, like, you know, a very simple thing. American people meet to say, oh, I love your shirt. And then my answer is, oh, yeah, I do too. So I think they're having an objective comment about my shirt, commentary about my shirt. Yeah. But no, it's just a way to engage and make you feel good and put you at ease. <laughs> it took me years to understand this. <laughs> it took me years to understand. It was just a yeah. nice, warm way to engage and make you feel good. Oh, I love your hair. Oh, you know, I saw, oh, you look so glowing today. You know, and I said, yeah, yeah, I thought the same. Like, you know, I think it was an objective well, the whole conversation <laughs> for years. But it's a pure, pure empathy, you know, pure making the other person feel good, you know, pure. Which, again, warmth. coming from Russia, I always, I, it took me a long time also to adjust to that. And Russians always suspect something. We don't expect any positive from outside. So we we see what's coming. Uh, like, wh where's the trick? Why are you saying this? <laughs> 700 years of Tsarism and decades of communism, of course, that creates a very yeah. skeptical, if not yeah. paranoid population. You um, know, so. So, so we talked a little bit about uh, the most attractive things about American culture. What are some of the things that you face that you struggled with and maybe you struggle to this day in this country my frenchness is what i struggle most with <laughs> is that your french way of avoiding this this question no not at all not at all not at all no no it's my very real uh, it's my very real i've i've learned to develop a lot of empathy for the world yes. in general for humanity for mankind including america which is where i live yes. which is so different from my system mm -hmm even 25 years later, you know, and I even speak still, I still speak with a very heavy French accent because, because I would feel phony to adapt the American way of talking, which doesn't really represent in its rhythm, in its vocabulary, in its construct, Interesting. the way I think and the way I engage the world, you know? So I can do it. I can mm. do it for a couple of sentences, but it doesn't stick. Because my Frenchness, you know, my, 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 the way my mind has been built, my heart has been shaped, um, is, remains French. So that's why I say my Frenchness, because, you know, if I'm in America and I took the, the American nationality to vote for Obama in 2008, and I want to just make clear, it's not so much Republican or Democrat as much as it is or it was um, at the time for the universal healing of a wounding of slavery and, you know, like you were the inferior of, because we're all the inferior of something or someone. So I thought that was like the, the number one country from the economic standpoint and pop culture standpoint, having a president that represented the beginning of a healing of a 250-year-old story. There's another one that's even older, which is the Native American, but America hasn't dealt with it with it at all, unfortunately. Very sad. Um, but anyway, the beginning of this was a very promising journey for mankind, I thought. So I thought that really was worth it for me to become American and create allegiance to this change in birthing. Um, 
I think it's beautiful that you made that choice because of that. I think a lot of, uh, and I think a lot of immigrants relate to that feeling that when we come here and we don't necessarily have a voice to vote, I'm not a citizen still, but I, I volunteer, I donate, I'm active to the degree that mm-hmm. I can be, mm-hmm. even though I'm not a citizen. Mm-hmm. Because somebody told me that immigrants <clears throat> are patriots of America in a different way because they mm-hmm. it's a it's mm-hmm. a citizenship of choice and it's a conscious for mm-hmm. a lot of us it's a conscious choice and I think it's uh, beautiful that you made that choice in, in this way <clears throat> that was my true deep motivation and there were other motivations mm. such as I had lost my green card and for one year I had to go through a little room whenever I was arriving at JFK at the late time with six hour jet lag and I still had to spend an hour something like crazy so that was one other motivation the other one was uh, for my nephews if they wanted to come and study here or live here they would have an American uncle that would make it easier for them and another one was simply that um, being in business in America, I think American people appreciate when you actually get on board fully. And if you don't get on board fully, you don't really live fully the American journey. And they kind of mm-hmm. look at you as a secondary item. And, that, you know, so I thought, okay, that's also another aspect of being part of American society and being able to express myself to the way I would like to express myself is to become American, you know. So those were the other. But the, really the main one was really supporting what I thought was an important humanitarian moment, you know, in the history of humanity, you know, a moment, a decisive moment of civilization. So, um, and did it bring the the change in the feeling of, of it for you? Getting the citizenship, did it change? Uh, so then I did that at the town hall in City Hall in, in New York. The judge was a six foot three Hong Kong uh-huh. Chinese, unusual, very tall who told his story, was very moving. His grandparents came, his parents were born here, went back to Hong Kong, came back. He he felt very, very, very American. It was a beautiful story. And then there were people in the room for for whom it was not a choice. It was an escape. It was a survival, you know? So that was extremely moving. And I just realized how privileged, which, you know, you you know it, but then when you're really in the same room, Mm -hmm. going through the same process, of gratefulness, but for them, it was really life and death. It was, it was like really it was huge, you know. So that was a very important moment from that perspective. Then when I left City Hall and I walked through mm-hmm. really downtown New York and then walked to Tribeca, it was very interesting. It was as if I was leaving a, st- a set, a stage set, mm-hmm. a stage set, as if I were on the stage and every building I was passing by was moving from being gray to whatever to, to becoming colorful. To, to really being in color. And it was like really I was leaving a, a set from a theater and I was entering in real life. It was like really physically I could feel it in my body. I was leaving something that had been a creation of my own to entering something that was. That was. And that was a very integrative moment because I came to America for my dream, you know, for that creativity. No, for that my dream mm-hmm. as a five-year-old, you know, to be able to integrate all the facets of who I am and, and, and be able to bring, I feel, 
to the world what was my personal life experience in a way that could hopefully help society and and uh, which is what I do with Coracle and the Novel World Foundation and the platform that I created, Coracle Academy, in addition to the consulting work I do with, yeah. with global leaders. Yeah. And that that was the moment. I, I, that's still ahead for me. And I'm actually looking forward to applying for my citizenship uh, at some point soon. Um, one other question that I like to ask people, how is, is completely uh, uh, to the side of this um how is love life different here? Mm, that's interesting. It was on my mind. So, okay. So, you know, love life, marriage, wedding. Okay. So the, it changes obviously enormously recently with what I call a gender explosion, you know? Um, but I will say that there's not so many layers, but one layer is the fact that in France, we have a society societal system that provides a foundation, a base for people to, for most of French people, get out of survival. Although it's getting harder and harder with the economic crisis and recessions and immigration. But overall, overall, let's say overall, at least you have a country that's committed mm-hmm. to making sure that everybody's included in the prosperity to the point that you reduce poverty as much as possible, at least as a promise, that's the goal, that's the mission of society and government. In America, it's different. 25% of personal bankruptcies yeah. are related to health issues. I know that my family would have been bankrupt if we moved here. Okay. So, yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing is they even research bringing people with the same level of um, material uh, well-being from the UK and in that same group some stayed in the UK some moved in the United States moved to the United States and lived in the United States and spent the rest of their lives and with the same level of, of material well-being the people who lived in the UK lived longer than the one who had moved to the US many factors but the conclusion of the study was that American society brings us a level of anxiety because mm-hmm. of the struggle for life that is not as present or was not as present mm-hmm. at the time of the study in Europe. So, mm-hmm. love, yes, <laughs> within this context, um, plays out very differently. And one aspect I found is that, at least in my generation, so bring that back 30 years ago, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, for American women at the time, it was, and I think it's changed, marriage represented a certain level of security, especially for those who wanted to have babies and a family. I think self-actualization mm-hmm. is, you know, as it was for me when I was in there at their age, you know, I came to America to self-actualize, to really know who I was and, and, and become myself. So, you know, I think that generation is more into this than the dream of perfect marriage and perfect home and perfect babies. So that has shifted. But in my generation, at least, I felt, I felt, you know, so, okay, that's one thing. The second thing is, you know, I, I got married here to a woman and I am with a male partner today because I'm bisexual myself and, or it is, that's how I see myself. And that's how I guess I would be called in, in the, in the usual vocabulary, although I really hate those words of homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual and everything because, 
you know, it's more fluid than this to me, <laughs> you know. Um, and and even and even if you know, whatever whatever your sexuality is, it's sexuality. Why do we need to make compartments and whatever? So it, it's not it's not it's not even the fact that I am homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, as much as it is the naming of it that really bothers me. Okay, because it's just limiting rather than conducive of what makes me feel better. So. Anyway, so I got married to an American woman um, uh, in America who was first generation here. She was an artist, um, so very independent in many ways, etc. And still for her to get mm. married was important. To me, it was not. But for her to get married was meant a certain level of stability, you know, because of the instability of American society, you know. So even in a woman who's definitely going for her own path as an artist, which is not an easy path, you know. You know, in France, those category of people, artists and everything, mm-hmm. marriage comes really long behind, long, late in the list, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's just a cultural difference, you see what I mean? That, that, that there, is, there, is a, there is a need for security in America through marriage that taints relationship, taints relationship, you know, love relationship, in a way that's different, I think, than in France. And... Uh... And what about the dating life? Like finding your partner? Like, is, what is, how does that relate to? You? Because, of course, uh, people have all kinds of assumptions about French people. And. Well, I mean, you know, dating is a complete, at least for me, was a complete foreign concept because I was very naive and romantic. And I was thinking, like, you know, you meet somebody, you fall in love, and that's it. You don't multiple dates. You don't look like all the, you don't have that multiple, you know, scheduling and all that stuff and relationships and conversations yeah, at Russia, the same it's not time. Acceptable. And same for you? You do one at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And, 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 and then you give it your all. And, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, at least that's how I was. That's how, that's how I was and very passionate and very, uh, and very um, singular, you know, in that way, like, you know, one, one, one percent at a time. And so the organized way of going after romantic relationships through dating throughout, throughout generations, which I find fantastic, you know, in France, at least when I grew up, if you were, when I grew up when I was a kid, you know, if you were 55 and divorced, you know, okay, you know, you'd better have good friends. You see what I mean? Because there was no reinvention of very, I mean, this that was not in my, in my family and the people I would see, whatever. First of all, most people were married. Um, divorcees were the uh, exception and by far. And, um, and there was no like second chance at leaving that big, you know, once in a lifetime encounter with the, the one and only. So that was, that was just like a very romantic picture. So for me to see people who just reinvent their love life at 60 or even 70, it's like, what? Like it feels like completely, um, um, it felt like the alien. Now I'm familiar with it. I'm okay with it. You know, you can, it turns out. (laughs) Yes, you can. Yeah. Um, Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, uh, I think we're I think we're heading towards the end. Is there are there any lingering thoughts? Anything else you'd like to add about your experience of adaptation here? Any Well, I would just say I think for anybody who um, changes country, whether it's to America or America to Asia or Asia to South America, whatever, you know, we all leave something behind that we need to create distance from, you know, and this notion of adaptation is an incredible opportunity to dig deeper 
you know, into what matters, doesn't matter, what's different, what we like, what we don't like, you know, what, what is my identity, what was my roots, what were my roots, what was my origin, my country of origin. So I think, you know, it's, it's a very mm-hmm. satisfying journey. And it's somewhat dissatisfying because you become a hybrid. You know, I'm no longer French. I don't think I will ever be fully American, you know. Uh, And at the same time, I think it's the path of the future, you know. I will end on one thing. I was once having dinner at friends, more like business friends, and I'm encountering this woman next to me. And they lived around the world in Australia, in the United States. She's from the UK. The father is from France. The kids um, mm-hmm. never lived in the UK. But the mother is from the UK. They were educated in English and uh, never lived in the UK. And when I said, well, what, what do your children feel like? You know, which nationality do they feel like? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, they feel British. So it was very interesting to me that their sense of identity from a nationality standpoint was not linked to having on the, to having been to have not to have not grown on yeah. the territory on the soil of the UK, yeah. and I thought it was very interesting, and um, and I think that's the way it should be if possible, you know, because frontiers they're not you know separate more than more than they unite. You see what I mean? And culture makes us unique to embrace more the universal. I love that. I love that. And to me, to me, again, one of the searches of this uh, podcast is how to be an alien. And I love that you said that, that you will never, you will probably never become American. I definitely relate to that. And for me, that scared me for a while. I realized at one point that the, the question was, does that mean that I will never belong And it took a long time to acquire that um, kind of uh, dual identity. And I think I'm still in the process. But I think the amazing thing about America is that you can be American. I can be American and not feeling fully American. And that's that's part of being American, (laughs) which is so fabulous, you know. To be an unfinished product, you know, like it's like, you know, the that's very French to think that you need to be that finished, polished French person in America, you just be, you're just like, a, a, you know, a process. You're just like in, in the making, you know, you're work in progress. And I like that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So similar with- That's it for today. Tune in to episode two to hear more about Francis's company and his method based on merging intuition and logic. Please subscribe to We The Aliens podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a review. Follow us on social media. Share the show with a friend. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Adios. Peace.